Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Right. Um, a while back, uh, Gary. Uh, sorry. Did you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a while back, Graham <laughs> invited his friend Gareth to speak to us on a Tuesday night, and Gareth um, spoke for quite a time on on uh, Isaiah 62 verse 7 about uh, God posting watchmen on the walls and that had been a theme that God had given me for many years and I wrote a song about it at least 10 years ago and, uh, and it was very much part of my life in a way and, and it just it woke up something inside me so um, I asked Graham if I could speak and it just fitted in with this idea of prayer so um, the, I've called the, the, the talk, uh, the sermon, The Posting of the Watchmen. Um, you might think, well, what's all that about? Uh, the, it's from uh, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6 and 7. Um, everything that I've done is in the NIV, just because I've got that version. Um, and this is it. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. And the first thing that uh, I want to mention uh, is that in the Bible, to watch means to pray. Um, Matthew 26, verse 38 to 41. And um, there's loads of texts I've got here today because I want to show that everything I'm saying is from the Bible. I'm not making any of this up myself. This is nothing to do with me. It's from the Bible. It's what God has said and therefore he wants us to know about it. But um, Matthew 26, verse 34 to 41. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was betrayed and as they got there in the garden, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And whenever watching is mentioned, it conjures up this idea of the spirit and the flesh and the battle between those two parts of us. And um, Galatians 5, verse 17 says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. And um, this idea of, of the flesh warring against the spirit within us, it's something that's going on all the time for those of us who 
been saved by faith. <clears throat> the, the people who were not at that point don't, don't tend to get that so much. They're, they're not aware of it. But we are more so than others. And it's, uh, it's like prayer is essentially spiritual warfare. Um, Matthew 6, 9, verse 10, sorry, so yeah, verse 9 to 10. Um, Jesus uh, had been speaking and the disciples around him said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he could have said so many things, couldn't he? You know, like make a list and speak for the world first and then the politicians in this country and then your family and friends and then but he could have said anything you know but this is what he said this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's just the first part i'm i'm only going into touch on that today because it's to do with what I'm talking about and so Jesus frames his example prayer in terms of an ongoing battle between heaven and earth and that that lovely song that uh, was sung today earlier on by Pippa and the rest of the guys was just um, spot on and our prayers should include a call to see God's name hallowed God's kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about this battle that's going on all the time. And, and Jesus shows us clearly that we should bring this battle into our prayers. The Old Testament reveals how important this element of prayer is from an actual encounter between the Israelites and the Amalekites in the desert of Sinai. It was not long after they had come out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and they immediately meet this opposition. And it's from Exodus chapter 17, verses 9 to 13. And I'm gonna give Graham the, the notes and he can put them on the WhatsApp site. And you can get all these, um, all of these quotes from the Bible. So check, just check, see if it's there, okay? It's important that we know that God has said this in the Bible. So it says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of your men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. The staff that Moses held up was the sign that God had originally given to Moses in Egypt. 
to show the Pharaoh that God was more powerful than he was, that is Pharaoh. And when Moses threw it on the ground before Pharaoh, it became a snake. But then the wizards of Pharaoh and his wise men, they did similar tricks and they made little snakes all around. But the, the cap of it all was that um, Moses' snake overpowered the snakes of Pharaoh's wizards and, and ate them. And so, you know, proving that God is more powerful by far than any, any Pharaoh. And the same staff was used to bring on many of the plagues that were visited on the, um, the Egyptians. It was also used to part the waters of the Red Sea and uh, on at least two occasions in the desert to bring water out of a stone, to bring water out of a rock. And in short, when the Israelites saw the staff of God, they remembered all the times that God had delivered them from evil circumstances. And it's a wonderful example from Scripture showing the relationship between prayer and victory in battle on the ground. But first, we need to point out a couple of things. For instance, in the New Testament, we do not fight against God's enemies with swords or anything. In John 18, verses 10 to 11, we read, Then, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane again, as the guards had come from the priest to arrest Jesus. And in a moment of uh, excitement, um, it says that um, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And in the New Testament, warfare takes place in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6, 11 to 12 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. We can now draw some important lessons from this encounter. There were two battlefields, one in the valley, one on the hilltop, and on these battlefields, there were two separate battles that were intimately tied together. The most important battle was actually the spiritual battle on the hilltop. Because unless Moses was engaging in prayer, the Israelite army below began to lose. So engaging in prayer in this way is partaking in spiritual warfare. Engaging in prayer is essential to having victory on earth as it is in heaven. We must be aware here that it is not us who fight against satanic powers. We don't have to shout or raise our voices or anything like that. What we, because, um, you know, it's not us that's fighting the devil here. It's Christ in us who's already taken on the enemy and defeated him. And our part in spiritual warfare is to remind 
ourselves of Christ's victory over Satan. We don't need to fight. We don't really even need to talk a lot. We can if we like, but like Moses, we should be holding that staff of God up in front of us, which is Jesus, glorified, resurrected, reminding ourselves and the devil about the fact that Satan's already been taken on and defeated in the, the cross and the resur resurrection. And so, um, you know, we, we just have to stand in that victory that Christ's already won. Okay, so moving uh, back to the, the, the text of the, the message today, uh, Isaiah 62, 6 and 7, who is speaking and who is being spoken to? It's always important to get those two things in your mind when you're reading the passage. Obviously, the answer is God most of the time, but I just wanted to point out that there's different ways that the prophet can get the, the, the message of God over. And in the first verse, the, the prophet is allowing God, he's, he's going along with God and he's speaking as if he is God. He's speaking in the first person. He says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. This is not Isaiah who's done that, this is God. So it's in, it's in that uh, uh, voice where it's God speaking directly. But also the, the prophet can come as merely a messenger. And in the second part, Isaiah is saying, so you who call on the Lord, i.e. the watchman, don't you know, rest and give God no rest until he does this. So who was God speaking to in, in, in these two verses? The first verse, the passage, God's speaking to the city of Jerusalem. But in the second verse, he addresses another group of people within the city whom is called the watchmen. Looking first at Jerusalem, at the time of this prophecy, it had been emptied of its rulers. Um, they were exiled in Babylon. Uh, before this, Jerusalem was seen by the Israelites as the very seat of God's government on earth. They believed that God lived in the temple at Jerusalem. But now the holy city was laid waste and its leaders were away in Babylon and no one of any power or influence was left in Jerusalem. And it was easy to think, easy for them to think that God had abandoned his idea of having Jerusalem as his earthly capital. But now uh, he sends word to these exile leaders that he's not forgotten Jerusalem and he wants to re-establish it. In, indeed, God will never relinquish the idea of having his kingdom established on earth. You might wonder, some people might wonder, does God prophesy to cities? Um, is it normal for God to address cities in, po in prophecy? Yes, it, it really is, in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, an example from the Old is uh, when he spoke to Jonah, and he said in Jonah 1 verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because wickedness has come up, come up before me. And then again, Jesus did the same thing when he greeted his uh, disciples back from having gone on the mission that he, he, he sent them. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. However, now, in this 21st century after Christ, to whom might these words of prophecy be addressed? Do, do we have to sit up and take note? Or were they just for that time and place? Obviously, the original recipient is the physical city of Jerusalem, or more accurately, those who were the inhabitants of the city. But today, in the 21st century, um, what city is being spoken of here? Modern-day Jerusalem, you may think, but it's hardly thought even by the Israelis to be the seat of God's kingdom on earth. I mean, you see those pictures of shells coming and going. How can God be there? You know, and, and you know, even the the Jews, the Israelis, uh, don't don't think in those terms yet because there's no temple there anyway. How can God live in somewhere that's just not existing anymore? Um, and, and also the modern state of Israel is not ruled by priests anymore. It's ruled by politicians. These guys, most of them don't have much faith anyway. But, um, you know, you may want to think that, but I, I can't see it. I can't see it being that city of Jerusalem that's out there in the Middle East that this prophecy's been speaking to now. I think that God does repurpose his prophecies for the different ages and uh, you know but you know some people don't think that they just say it's just for that time and place um, and the fact that God's prophecy can be repurposed it must be true because if if it was the case that it wasn't then much of the New Testament would be invalid uh, for instance um, Luke in Luke uh, sorry, Jesus in Luke 4, verse 16 to 21. He goes into Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this Old Testament scripture is actually from the same chapter as the verse that I've chosen for this sermon uh, a bit earlier on. And it was originally delivered by Isaiah um, to the, saying, the, old, the exile readers, um, rulers of Jerusalem in the 8th century BC. But it, in here, in Luke 4, it's appropriated by Jesus as referring to himself delivering the same message to the descendants of those people living in Nazareth 800 years later. So in this, in this example, I, uh, Isaiah becomes a type of Christ delivering this message 
to the exiled rulers of Jerusalem. And it's the same one, you know, about the prisoners uh, being set free and stuff like that. But the actual fulfillment of the prophecy came 800 years later when Jesus used it to announce his mission statement because Jesus was the actual person who that was about. And then um, after Jesus had been resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and on this one occasion he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. That's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The, you know, if, if, a, if a Jewish person read those scriptures, they'd say, oh no, that's about, that's about us, that's about Israel. But in actual fact, it was about Christ. Much of what was in the Old Testament that the, the Jews thought was to do with them, it was actually to do with Jesus. So biblical prophecy can be spoken or written to different people or communities of people separated by several hundred or even thousands of years. I mean, after all, it's, it's uh, the 21st century after Christ rose into heaven. So it's a long time, isn't it? But we need to um, scroll forwards in, in, into the last book in the Bible to see who God is actually addressing as Jerusalem in Isaiah 62 verse 6 and 7 and it's in Revelation 21 verse 2 that we read I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out, out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband the only people who are described as the bride of Christ anywhere in any literature are those who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah and are born again of the Holy Spirit. So this passage in Isaiah 62 is addressed to us now in this 21st century and this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Regarding the city coming down out of heaven, I do not believe it's going to come down from the sky as Christ will when he returns. It's not, it's not going to happen that way. Um, Acts chapter 1 tells us that when Jesus ascended in front of the disciples, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven, i.e. from the sky. I don't believe that the, the new Jerusalem will come down out of the sky like Christ. I believe it will simply be revealed to the world when it is fully ready and mature. Similar to the passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and 19 that says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I believe the same can be said for the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ. That creation waits in eager expectation for the new Jerusalem to be revealed or, and for the bride of Christ to be revealed. And just as Isaiah in the Old Testament was a type of Christ, so also the physical city of Jerusalem was only a type of the true Jerusalem, which consists of those who believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah of God. And there's only one group of people living on earth today who can truly claim to be the new Jerusalem. They are saved by faith in God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, they have been redeemed not by the blood of animals slaughtered on the altar of the temple, but by the blood of the true Lamb of God. In fact, they have no need of a temple building because they are each become living temples of the Holy Spirit. They have their feet planted on solid earth, but they are also living in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And gazing in wonder at the face of God in Christ, they are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory into another. That's 2 Corinthians 17 verse 18. They can truly say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Like John the Baptist, they must cry, he must become greater and I must become less until the day when they are revealed to the world as the children of God and the new Jerusalem that is fully prepared to rule with Christ on earth. Uh, this doesn't mean that God has completely designed his Old Testament, uh, disowned his Old Testament people, but he cannot include them in his plan of salvation until they accept Jesus as their Messiah. Note that the city and the bride are being prepared in heaven this indicates that the work of preparation can only be done by God himself. And God left no instructions on the ground for the church battling on earth so that it could improve and prepare itself in readiness for Christ's return. Psalms 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, there are those uh, you know, elements of watching again in the city, the gods stand watch in vain. The only strategy that God has left is for us to go to the hill of prayer and pray for God to make us what we should be. The job of the watchman is to, be, to remind God in the heavenly places, i.e. in prayer, to move on with his preparation of the holy city and the bride of Christ so that she can be revealed from heaven, ready for her husband, so they can reign together in the kingdom of God on earth. I often wonder when Christ, I'm sure you do, will return to earth. And various answers have been suggested over the years since Christ ascended from earth to the Father in heaven, including the idea that he's waiting until everyone on earth becomes a Christian or hears the gospel. And there may be tr some truth in that. It's certainly true that the gospel today has never been so accessible since the invention of the internet. And anyone living in any part of the world who belongs to any other faith can access the Bible from their own living room. 
which is a fantastic thing. It's wonderful, and and you know, and I, you know, we must remember to pray for people like Garth, who takes the word of God in the form of the New Testament out to children in schools. And uh, I remember getting one of those as a young, a young lad, and uh, you know, I didn't have much, but I had this beautifully bound New Testament given to me for nothing. And I went home and I actually did read some of the lessons that they provided in the back. And it must have had some effect on me, you know. Uh, God's word doesn't return to him void. So that's, that's such a great thing. However, from what I read here in Isaiah 62, I'm convinced that Christ is waiting at the right hand of the Father until his bride's ready and prepared to rule on earth with him. It makes sense to me that the bridegroom is waiting for his bride to be ready. What other reason could there be? We all know how long it takes for the bride to enter the church at a wedding. And, you know, we are super in that vein. So now we can see how the message of Isaiah 62 speaks to all living Christians because God addresses all who believe in Jesus Christ as Jerusalem. Those who are in Christ, Christ are here referred to as Jerusalem, but not meaning the actual city of Jerusalem in the Middle East, but the new Jerusalem spoken of in Revelation. And there may come a time, there may come a time when the actual physical city becomes the focus of God's activity on earth again, but uh, I don't believe that is yet. And that was talking about Jerusalem. Now the watchman, the second verse of the passage is directed to the watchman. And I'm getting to the end now. And God is enlisting the help of a group from within his people, Jerusalem, who he calls the watchmen. Thankfully, these watchmen don't need to have gift ministries such as being apostles or prophets or even evangelists. And neither do they need the charismatic gifts such as healing, prophecy or signs and wonders. These are things that are needed down in the valley in the battle between the Amalekites, etc. Um, all they need is to be able to pray. And he calls on the help of these watchmen to remind him in prayer that he must establish his church and make it the praise of the earth before Christ, his son, can leave heaven and return again to earth with his bride in the kingdom of God on earth. All they need is a burning desire to see God's people moving beyond being just a disparate company of the redeemed to being an established and honoured group who are demonstrating the salvation of God on earth. So in short, we need to start looking like the kingdom of God on earth to the world. And we need to start looking like the bride of Christ to God. But it's no use pretending. That's what I think the church has done throughout the 21 centuries since he went to heaven. But it's, it's no use pretending. We can't just hide behind the good old evangelical smile or false demonstrations of honouring the brethren. This can only happen if we give ourselves to prayer and acknowledge that only God himself 
can cause us to be revealed as the new Jerusalem. He must increase in our lives and we must decrease. So that's it now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray now and you can either say this prayer or not. Um, it's up to you. Uh, you may, you may want to grab the words off the, the website um, if, and then say the prayer later on or you may want to do it now. But I just want to ask you if you would join with, with me in standing. And if you want to say the prayer with me, do so. I'm going to do half a line at a time. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we want to be watchmen. Who call upon you in prayer. That you would establish us and cause us to become the praise of the earth. Help us to pray tirelessly until we are ready to be revealed as the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ. To rule on earth with him. Cause us in Christ. Sorry, cause Christ in us. To increase. And ourselves to decrease. So that we will reflect. The full glory of Christ. To the world. Thank you. I'm just going to step up there now and use the guitar to sing the song that I that I wrote about this. What I wrote, and uh, you know, th I think the words will be up. I don't. Yeah. Um, so, and then when I've finished, the meeting will be over.
Make sure the 